All right, so as you know, I'm a lawyer, all right, and I am always keeping up with the latest trends in the law as much as I can. Of course, you got to do MCLE, uh, which is minimum, minimum continuing legal education and such, and you get, you know, information about your profession, as I'm sure it's true in the therapy world, uh, in the doctor world, or the dentistry world, and so forth. And <clears throat> one of the uh, things that a trends that is interesting to follow is the bar passage rate in your state. Now, of course, I'm only uh, in California, so it's it's what is the bar passage rate in California? It's it's famously low. It's considered the toughest exam in the country, along with New York. I think they vie for the the competition there. But uh, the question is, is it really? Um, I mean, more people want to go to California and be California lawyers, and more people take the test. But does that mean the test itself is difficult, more difficult, right? I, I don't know that that's the case. So merely because, I mean, let's say, uh, let, let's say, just talk about basketball players. And all you need to be as a basketball player is to be at least six foot four inches tall, all right? That's it, you're done. And then you're on the team. Well, then the competition is very easy for someone, someone who's six foot five, right? He's in. <laughs> it's not a struggle for him. Someone who's six, uh, you know, point two nine nine, he's going to have a tough time convincing why he should be in, right? So, in other words, it's difficult only for a certain group of people, and it's easy for another group of people. And in California, you have so many people vying for this. Uh, this position, but it's not as if they, there's only so much room. It's not like applying to uh, an elite university and there's only 1,500 spaces in that class and there are 6,000 people applying. But even then, the, the competition is only within a certain group of people, right? So anyway, uh, it, it, it's, you have to look at it from your standpoint of who you are, you know, what your own background is. In other words, somebody who went to a, a good law school, uh, did decently, and did well on the LSAT and such like that before law school, there's a good chance he's going to pass the bar. In fact, it's probably more of a 90% chance that he's going to pass the bar. So the, the latest trend now, and this is from the California Bar, they're concerned about the decrease in the passage rate. It's, it's gone from, I think, 60 at, at, at a high once a couple of decades ago to the recent bar pass rate in, in 2016, July of 2016, was 43%. And that's considered quite low. And the question is, why? Why is this happening? Right? And, I, and I love breaking down the numbers because it, this is so emblematic of so many other things that we're seeing. Right? <clears throat> and this is, again, dovetails into conservatism and liberals because the conservative asks why. Why is this happening? So Ari, what, what do you think? Why is that number decreasing? Because um, I'll give you my perception in a moment. But as a layperson, why is that number decreasing? The the first thing that comes to that comes to mind, not knowing anything about your profession, is that there's an increase in the number of colleges, an increase in the number of college students. There's simply people, more people, taking the bar overall, and fewer of them by. <clears throat> For, you know, by percentage, are qualified to pass the bar and capable of doing it within 
whatever is required of the bar. Right. No, that, that would be my assumption. Right. Applying the same kind of thinking I'd apply to Major League Baseball, uh, you know, the PGA Tour, uh, right. you know, NBA basketball, any of those things. So you got, I think that's a very reasonable assumption. And so you're, you're focusing on that. And then you could also say one that I think is not accurate, but you can, you, you have to throw it out. Maybe people are just getting dumber. Okay. It, assuming that you're talking oh, about the same level I, of... I believe in that, yes. <laughs> assuming that you're getting the same level of testing, and the testing is not actually harder, that, that could be the third explanation, right? That the testing is actually harder. And that's the reason why it's a lower power path. So that's also, you could throw that into the mix. So A, there, there are many more people taking it. B, um, people are just getting dumber. <laughs> or, or C, that the test itself is getting harder. That would explain what we're talking about. Now, B and C, I don't believe, right? I mean, they're not getting dumber. People are, you know, their, their brains are still their brains, and I don't think we're devolving intellectually. Uh, well, unless you're a liberal, then you are definitely devolving <laughs> because you're not asking questions at all. But I digress. <laughs> I, I'm confident that the, the, the test itself is not getting harder uh, because the state bar itself is concerned about this decreasing thing. So why would they want to make the test harder if they're concerned about this. So assuming it's the same level of difficulty, I don't think that's the case either. Your first point is there are many more people taking it. I don't think that's, that's the reason either, Ari, because it's, it's, um, it's not like the college example that I gave before where there are only so many spots to become a lawyer. We, this, uh, this year, we only want to allow 4,000 attorneys, new attorneys into the scene to replace the Attorneys who are dying off or anything else like that, uh, we, you know, we're trying to control the supply of It's not like that, okay? Uh, so if they, if they all happen to pass, it's, it's not even on a curve in the same way that you might think of a curve in college. So you could want, technically have a year where 90% of the people pass merely because, you know, gosh golly, that's, that's the, the turnout. Now, the reason why, in my humble opinion, is that you have to look at a bunch of factors that are going on. One is the rise of unaccredited law schools, okay? You have, uh, if, if you were to go to an unaccredited law school, you can pass the bar. <clears throat> it's just, it's a self-selecting process. If you go to these unaccredited law schools, it means you probably didn't do as well on the LSAT, which is the entrance exam to the law school, and you're going to more likely than, than not fail, all right? Now, likewise, if you went to an accredited law school, uh, then your chances of passing the bar is much higher. Okay, so and you have to look at your own particular circumstance. So A, did I go to an accredited law school? That's one thing, and that, that will make a big difference. Suddenly it goes from 43% to about 65%, maybe even higher. Now, next, you have to ask yourself about the diversity programs, okay? Listen, the reality is, and the, one of the things we hate about aff affirmative action, is that it's a racist policy. And it, it allows people who have lower grades and lower entrance, in, in that case, the SATs, uh, to, to get into law school, into a, a law school competing with people who've gotten in much higher scores. And so as a consequence, when it comes time for the bars, which, which is colorblind, it doesn't know that you're black, it doesn't know that you're Hispanic, it doesn't know that you're Asian or anything. It just looks at the words on the paper that you have typed up and either you pass or you don't pass. It's truly colorblind. And 
sadly, what happens is that because the diversity students, the affirmative action students, they do very, unfortunately, do comparatively poorly on the bar. And the ones who are not affirmative action students, they do quite well. At the time that I took the bar, um, <clears throat> and I think it's still true today, the non-diversity students did very well as long as it came from an affirmative action, uh, sorry, from an accredited law school. They did very well. And in a very high passage rate, relatively speaking to the rest, to the total package, I think it was something like 90%. So once I realized that, I went into the bar with, with a, a good deal of confidence. I'm, I wasn't an affirmative action student. I did go to an accredited law school. I did pretty well in that law school. You know, I, I wasn't worrying. The only thing that I, I just, that I worried about is that will I get enough sleep <laughs> and will, be, will there be something that happens that makes me anxious, like, you know, God forbid a, a close relative dies or something like that, or you break up with your girlfriend or something. That can have an impact on your ability to concentrate. And then just the endurance of it all. It's, it was three days, six hours straight each day. You know, you just want to make sure that you can still, you can still pack it in, right? But provided that you go through that process and you just kind of go through the numbers, you're going to pass. You know, very likely that you're going to pass. And, and not, nowhere in this analysis or this concern, I should say, of the bar passage rate going lower, do they ask the question, why is it happening? Isn't that funny? You, you would think that's the first thing you would ask. For example... Uh, people are very interested in, in the, the bumblebee population, right? It's decreasing, and they want to know why, right? <laughs> why is it happening? And they don't bother asking. Can you imagine that? Or, you know, if you suddenly had a whole bunch of accidents in Los Angeles, car accidents, uh, you, would, you would ask the question, why? Why is it happening? Now, they may have different solutions and such like that, but you still should ask the question, why? I don't think we want to ask these, these questions. And the, the unaccredited... Law schools, that's the last thing they want to ask or have the state bar ask, hey, you should, you know, you should tell your students that because you're unaccredited, you're going to have a much like, less likely scenario of actually passing than if you went to an accredited law school. And likewise, affirmative action is, is really hurting uh, higher education. It's hurting everyone. It's, it's giving uh, an unfair leg up to um, diversity students, you know, people of different color, simply because... They're of a different color, which that's racist in and of itself. And you're having them compete in, on, on a level, and then they have to go into the big bad world where, you know what, you're, you're judged not on your color. You're judged on whether or not you're a, a persuasive advocate for your client, whether you know the issues of law or you don't know the issues of law, and whether you know how to, to negotiate. All those things have to be part of your equation. If you don't have it, you're not going to succeed as a lawyer. That's why we have the bar. Think of it as a bar over which you must conquer, right? You, you leap over if you like. They don't ask these questions. And, and I think another part of the reason why is that in this, they also notice that the GPAs of these affirmative action students tend to be lower. And that's not surprising, right? If you let them in on lower standards, they're not necessarily going to get the same GPAs in professional or graduate schools as they would in, as they did in, in undergrad or, or sorry, as, as the, um, uh, the non-affirmative action students are going to do. It's not a surprise there at all. So what happens, Ari, in that situation? You, you think about it, right? You, you start lowering the standards in order to make it more even keel. It's not as if you improve, you don't expect the, the affirmative action students to kind of measure up and train them better 
so that they can get the same GPAs as the non-affirmative action students and then they can actually pass the friggin' bar. No, no, no. What they're going to do, because it's easier, is simply to lower the, the, the standards altogether so that you don't have to focus so much on, on all the homework and all the difficult stuff to do so that it's, they actually get higher GPAs, hence great inflation, as they call it, and uh, bad things happen as a result for everyone, right? And then because they don't have <clears throat> the, the GPAs necessary, or it's a false GPA, if you will, they still go into uh, the bar and they don't know their stuff. And it's not just law school, my friends. I mean, the, the reason why I bring up law school is because there is a bar passage rate and it's such a great example of what I'm talking about. But it's, it's the same thing in, in, in life, generally speaking. You can't have this where you have a standard for one and not for the other and then expect things not to change. You know, when I went to Stanford, there was, um, uh, there was a great cry about two years after I graduated to change the entire Western civilization a requirement. Okay? So this was called upon by a lot of affirm affirmative action students which felt that uh, Western civilization was culturally centric um, and so, therefore, we got to get rid of it. And it, it just it completely eviscerated so many standards all of a sudden. And now to go to Stanford, which is still a great school, of course, I you know I think it's it is a selective school, and I'm proud to have uh, gone there. But to to not to, to go to school there and to not know who Plato was as a requirement, to not know who Aristotle was, Descartes, John Hume. Um, you know, to understand what the Renaissance meant and what the Enlightenment meant, that's a shame, right? I mean, it's the core of our culture in many ways, but it's been dismissed. It's been taken away for all sorts of PC reasons. But I think also a lot of it was this notion that, well, you know, we got to make it easier for everyone because we don't want to have this continuing disparity between the affirmative action students on the one hand and the non-affirmative action students on the other. So no one wins, right? You you send your child affirmative actions or not to a college, you're not getting the same high-quality education, the same rigorous and demanding education that you think of when you were little and you, you imagine going to college and you, you thought it was so tough. You know, it's not so tough anymore. So people graduate with these GPAs that really are not really reflective of their intelligence or their hard work or, or their drive to learn. I mean, you, you brought up a great example, Ari, of, um, you know, I, I started off, but you, you kind of cleaned it up really well, which is this notion that if you in professional baseball said, listen, you know, we want to be able to bring in people who are not necessarily very capable in sports, but they really want to play professional ball and they should be allowed to, to play because that's the right thing to do, right? And, and you know, if you put me there, at any age in my life, and not, not at my age right now, of course, I'm too old, but even if I, when I was 20, 25, and you, you put me at, at, at bat, <clears throat> and I see a ball whizzing by me at 100 miles an hour, I'll be lucky if I even nick the ball one out of every 10 times, right? I'm certainly not going to hit a home run, because I'm just not skilled in that department. And if you <clears throat> put more and more guys like me and, and require them to play in the professional league, Guess what? I will predict, Ari, that the, 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 um, uh, the batting average of all the players, generally speaking, will go down. And they'll wonder, why is this happening, right? And, and perhaps the reason why is because you let schmucks like, you know, like me in, or people who are not 
you know, it don't need, shouldn't be in professional baseball in the first place. So, you know, we're saying, you know, it, it begs the question. I, I just gave the answer, but if we, if you were to ask yourself, why is the batting average of all professional baseball players going down so precipitously, you'd be scratching your heads. I wonder why. I wonder why. And the answer is right there. And and likewise for the bar passage rate, and likewise so many other questions that we have in society. Why is it happening in the first place, right? And <clears throat> and this dovetails nicely into to healthcare, right? We people. People expected Obamacare. They wanted something like Obamacare even before Obamacare was enacted. Why? Because they said, "Look at what's happening in the uh, in the medical world. Uh, you know, prices for medical care is going sky high, and people can't get insurance. And gosh, golly, it's so bad." So <clears throat> they never asked the question, "Why?" You know, you would think that is a question you should ask. Why is it happening? But no, no, no. They weren't interested in that question. They were interested in just imposing a solution um, without asking what the problem was in the first place. The solution was to socialize medicine, to require that with a mandate and everything that we know and love so much about Obamacare, right? That's, that was their answer to a question they never even asked. That's why we, we, we call this podcast the answer to the question we never asked, Okay. And I, I, it, I see this time and time again. It's, it's really frustrating. And I know you conservatives out there feel the same way that I do. No one asks the question, why is this happening? Because they dare not. They ask, I mean, even global warming, for example, they don't ask questions on either end of it, right? On the, on the first, uh, first instance, they say, why is global warming happening? And they, don't, they don't ask the question, is man really responsible? They tell you that man's responsible. They don't ask the question, is man responsible and how is it happening? Putting aside all the other questions, is global warming actually happening? And then they don't ask questions on the back end. Like, why hasn't (laughs) the Earth's temperature risen in the past 15, 17 years as has been predicted so much? Why Why haven't the polar ice caps melted as has been predicted? Why has Al Gore been exactly wrong on everything that he predicted? There's not a single thing that he was right about back in, from 2003, I think, was the original. Um, 2007, 2006, 2000. Yeah, okay. For the so, movie, right? Not his uh, activism. No, the movie? No, no, it was, it was before. Okay. It was before, I'm quite sure. Um, it doesn't matter. The point is he made these predictions for our time now, right. and they haven't happened. Right. All for the far distant future, because he, you know, he's safe saying that. In the year, in the grand long future of the year 2009, 2012, 2013, and such, making all these bold predictions, because you know, 2013 would have been 10 years from 2003, and therefore, you know, that, that's a nice, safe place to make predictions. And, you, and they never ask, did, was he right? We asked that question, and of course we know the answers to it. He was wrong on everything. But questions are not interesting to them. They, or, well, I don't know if that's interesting or not. I, I just know that they don't ask the questions. They don't put it forth. And then, and then they destroy us rhetorically if we dare ask the questions. Right. Gee, gee, President Clinton, do you think it's really a good idea to make that nuke deal with the uh, Kim family in North Korea in right. 1994? Gee, Mr. Carter, do you really think it's a good idea to return Ayatollah Khomeini to Iran with the danger it might turn to a theocracy? Gee, Obama, do you think it's a good idea to give nukes to that country, Iran, that Jimmy Carter allowed to degrade into a theocracy. Uh, do you think those are going to be problems in the future? Oh, that's a good point. You know, the, the, the questions of how do we get here in the first place, right? 
and, and going back to Obamacare, then I want because I, I want to talk about North Korea too. When it comes to Obamacare, people never asked, you know, how do we get here in this place in the first place, meaning before Obamacare, you know, with the high, the relatively high premiums back then. Right, with the HMO thing and right. all that, all this socialism in our system. Where did it all come from? Yeah, it was already packed in in the first place. And the reason why we have it is because, because it's a false economy in the first place. And that leads to lack of accountability, which in turn leads to higher prices and uh, lack of innovation and all those things that we don't like. So, but they had the answer to that, but it was the wrong answer, which only amplified the problem. So likewise, going to North Korea, we asked the question, how do we get, why is North Korea, North Korea, I put that in, in air quotes now, why is it North Korea, North Korea, the way we know and love it today? The reason why is because we've emboldened it over and over again. We've always given them the same response every time they uh, rattled their sabers, which is money. Here's more money to stop you from your temper tantrum. Please do not threaten nuclear uh, buildup. So long as we give you, how does $2 billion sound to you? It, uh, good? Okay, great. Thanks a lot. And we'll, we'll see you in two years when the lease is up again, <laughs> okay? Right. We ignore the fact that that $2 billion will buy a lot more future temper tantrums. Oh, for, for sure. And, and it only emboldens them to, to, to go crazy in the future. Same thing with Iran, like you just mentioned. And, as, you know, and, and they never ask the question about the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. Like, why is this happening in the first place? Isn't that a question worth asking? Why is it happening in the first place? I, I, I mean, I, we, we had a very funny uh, conversation, you and I, a, long, uh, a few months ago now, when Obama decided to open up relations with Cuba, right? Now, we know why he did it, and we're pretty cynical about that. But putting that aside, the cynicism aside, his explanation for why he wanted to open it up was he said, look, we've been at this game for 50 years and with no real improvement and no real change in Cuba, we ought to try something different. Okay. To which I say, can you apply that same analysis to the, to the Middle East conflict, please? Can you apply that same analysis to affirmative action? P.S. That's about 50 years old as well. Can you apply that same analysis to minimum wage and every other liberal concept that you believe in, including social security and so forth? Apply it. Ask the question. Is it working? They don't care about that. And, and, and more importantly, how do we get here in the first place? Why is it that the Arabs and, and, and Israelis appear to be in perpetual conflict? Right? What's happening? What explains this? So first get the explanation and then decide what the solution would be that, to, the, to that problem. I mean, I remember we joked around. If you had um, a leak in your uh, house you know, water pouring from your ceilings, right? The first thing you would do is go to your... Electrician. Electrician. Yeah. And, and, and if you had a, uh, you know, a real big pain in your back and it's just oh, terrible, terrible pain, you would go to your... Neurosurgeon. <laughs> no, not neurosurgeon. You, you would go to your plumber. Naturally. Oh, oh, plumber. Okay, yeah. not even a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah not even a doctor. Jesus. Yeah. I was so trying what to what are you thinking? A, I was just trying to pick a different part of the body. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and technically speaking, the plumber could look at it and say, you know, he could proclaim some sort of a response to it because you've asked him to. Yeah, he might actually fix it by stumbling right. into the solution. Right. But, you know. Right, right. He may have an analogy in plumbing that somehow works on your back. Yeah. But that's that's not a good way to, to proceed. It's, it's, it's a bizarre right. way Right, you're to lowering your overall chances of passing the bar, yeah. if you will. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. But, but when the Arab-Israeli conflict, we don't ask the question, here we go again, right? And we say, uh, why is this happening in the first place? But they have, they're full of solutions, full of it, right? Same thing with gun control. 
<laughs> that uh, they don't ask why is it happening that these people are engaging in their murder sprees, and and secondly, they don't ask the question, you know, whether it's it's the availability of guns that creates the murder sprees or something else, right? So that's that's their problem. They just will never ask the question. They are afraid of the question. Yeah, speaking of that last example, and this is a little off subject directly, but it does raise an interesting conservative question. And it's one of the reasons I absolutely love it when foreign policy crises arise, because it tends to simplify every and clarify every issue. Why do liberal Democrats in America have such an objection to daring to give or make available guns to law-abiding Americans— why, why is that such a problem? But they're just fine with giving nuclear weapons to some of the worst, most evil people who run rogue stakes around the world. Yeah. You know, now, why is it okay for Kim Jong-un to have a nuclear weapon, but it's not okay for me to have a concealed carry permit? Right, a conventional you know, Colt 45, whatever, yeah. right? I, I, you know, it's a brilliant, a brilliant point, Ari. They're okay. They're jiggy with... Uh, with with Iran having the nuclear bomb because, you know, after all, we have the bomb. Why shouldn't they have the bomb? Wait a minute. Hold on. If you're saying that if we're, we have the bomb and they should have the bomb just, you know, to even the score, well, then why can't I say that about having a gun, right? The bad guys who are invading my house, they have a gun. Why can't I have a gun to, to even, even the, the score, score, right? The questions are not interesting to the, the classic liberal. They're just... The lefty, right, I should because say. The, and and yeah. the answer is obvious because they will get an answer, being intellectually honest, that they don't want. Yeah, so true. Flat out. It's it's. Uh, and and by the way, this goes entirely to the, the climate issue because again, they don't want to ask these questions because they will have to then do, go through actual scientific process, and even they are smart enough to see they'll get an answer they don't want. I, look, and all you have to do with somebody who's a climate change supporter, uh, ask them questions. Show me the causation. That's all. That's all you have to do. Show me the causation between so-called man-made efforts, whether it's carbon emissions through cars or through uh, cows and otherwise, and that that is actually leading to a dangerous increase in the, the temperature. Also, P.S., tell me how much it's going to increase. And also, P.S., tell me how much damage it's going to cause. Okay? Until that day, don't have me change my entire lifestyle. And, and, and not only that, but the entire lifestyle of the United, Nate, uh, United States and the whole world. So let's, let's talk about what we're actually dealing with, right? Questions are not of interest to them at the end of the day. Uh, anyway, I find this fascinating, and it all was triggered by the question that, uh, the, the non-question of uh, the state bar to say, hey, listen, we're, we've got this low passage rate. We don't know why. They don't even ask. They don't even say we don't know why. Because to, ask that, to, to make that statement would mean that there's a question behind it, which would beg an answer to say, why is it happening? And I love Again, the, assuming, yeah. assuming that the, 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 question, the, the exam itself is the same level of difficulty as it always was. Right. And I also love the assumption. The assumption being, well, everyone should pass. No, it's a bar. It's a hurdle. Not everyone should get over it. Right. Right. It's a, you have to meet requirements before you take it. Then you have to take it and meet those requirements to get over it. And then, God willing, for those who get over it, they will be good lawyers when they practice law. Right. I well, mean, the, because the point of passing is to be a good lawyer and a competent lawyer and an ethical lawyer after you pass it. Right. That's never asked. So 
one last point, which I'll, I'll say before we move on to our next segment, and that's this. So remember how I told you how the standards would reduce when it came to affirmative action? It's not as if the affirmative action students are uh, getting special programs to to rise uh, to, up, to, to rise up, yes. to, to to understand and to give them a leg yeah, up. Yeah, it's to, not like there's a law uh, pre-law classes in high schools in predominantly African American areas to prepare them for the rigors of Stanford. Say right, right. right. So they, by the way, they tried doing that in the beginning, and then they dropped those things. They oh, that just it, took too much work. It, it took know? a lot of work, yeah. right? So instead, what they what they started doing is kind of getting rid of requirements on on PC grounds and otherwise. But really, what they were doing was making simply making things a lot easier so that, you know, it looked more even even keel, right? Affirmative action students and and non-affirmative action students, look, they're doing more or less the same. Isn't that great? Um, So that's what happens. Ultimately, you're you're not raising anybody's standards. You're just decreasing the overall standards. Uh, And that's what's going to happen. And so how do you think the state bar, that what they're contemplating doing in this, in response to the great problem of the lower passage rate, Exactly that, Ari. They are thinking about reducing the passing score from one number to a lower number, and then you'll have a higher passage rate. Problem solved, right? (laughs) They don't understand what caused the problem, but the problem has been solved, okay? Just like climate change, just like like minimum wage, just like Obamacare, uh, just like affirmative action, all those things. Yeah, and you, Pro- yes, problem, problem solved. solved. And, All right. And so, yeah, and it wonderfully ignores human nature, which is when you lower the costs of something, you get more of things at that cost, that's or right. more people only striving to reach that number. So what you'll have in ten years, let's just say they do it, is they'll have the same forty-three percent passage rate, only at a lower score. Well, that, that's right. right. Yeah, that's right. They, they, people uh, descend to their level, as it were. Yes. At their expected level. <laughs> they, they they descend to their expectations. <laughs> Okay, so now I do want to move on to the next topic. All right, so, so here's the issue that I find so fascinating. All right, if you Google, as it turns out, this was uh, presented to me by a friend on an email. If you Google... Me. Yeah, you... Right. <laughs> no, uh, others also others. pointed it out. No, it's not just you. Uh, if you Google Abraham Lincoln, uh, in, 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 no matter what permutation... Uh, President Abraham Lincoln, which political party did Abraham Lincoln belong to, or just Abraham Lincoln, at least good for today, uh, August, uh, what, 11, 2012, uh, 2017, it'll pop up because Google, it's Google search engine. I don't know about Yahoo and otherwise, but the Google search engine will pop up that he was a member of the National Union Party, all right? Do you remember that from your history? Look, because that was all over your history books. What's that you say? There was no such a reference whatsoever. What's that you say? You say that Lincoln was actually the first president to run on the Republican Party platform? What's that you say? <laughs> that the Democrats were the party of slavery? And what's that you say? That the Republicans were, have been consistent, uh, anti-slavery, egalitarian to all men, and eventually to women, of course, uh, and that were the party of freedom. <laughs> and, and that's... What, but, but no, you wouldn't believe that from Google. Apparently, he belonged to a party called the National Union Party. You know. <laughs> but the brilliance of this from a totally cynical, manipulative standpoint, if you were trying to alter the minds and change history, is to do exactly this. Because if you had 
say, a hypothetical teacher who wanted to just kind of be ahead of the game to tell his kids about Abraham Lincoln, or for that matter, a kid wanted to do a student report, he would know that, that he would learn, apparently, that he belonged to this previously phantom party called the National Union Party. And then, uh, and then when people say he was the first Republican, they'd say, no, he wasn't. In fact, he would have been a Democrat today. That, that's, that's the way. Now, this is Google, right? This is not, you know, some sort of government Orwellian uh, stance that's being taken. Uh, far from it, right? It's Google's doing itself. And, and it's not just Google. It's other major organizations that are doing this kind of thing where they're trying to twist history. But Google has power. Google has the power of information, more so than the government does. It's not as if the government can do public service announcements day in and day out saying Abraham Lincoln was a National Union Party member. No, this is far, far more nefarious, isn't it? Now, before you go on and say, okay, Barack, this is crazy. Some, some clerk just, you know, decided to, to put this in for Google. Well, shame on Google for you know, not knowing what was going on with the various different people. That was Ari opening up his uh, club soda, you know, trying to do it gingerly, but can't seem to do it gingerly. Anyway, uh, we, it, this is a rough place to work, folks. I, I, I tell you, I, I don't know that I can work under these conditions. Um, Ari's constantly threatening to, uh, to fire me, and then I remind him that I'm actually employing him. It's, it's a very uh, awkward situation. Why that, do you have such a problem with me drinking on the job? <laughs> but this is the... This is the age of the breakdown of distinctions, my friends. <laughs> who's the employer? Who's the employee? Who's the father? Who's the son? And so forth. All right. <laughs> who's the man? Who's the woman? Uh, anyway, you, you get this point. It, it's, it's all a big blur now. Um, and Google is engaging in this bizarre pattern. Now, I, I bring this up because there's a big story that has come out recently uh, revolving around Google, whereby a fairly high-up guy basically said, hey, listen, we want to have maybe more diversity of thought. Uh, different political persuasions would be nice. Uh, somebody wants to have a pro-life position. That shouldn't be such a big thing. After all, we're Google, we're a business, not necessarily a political party nor a social agenda party. So it wouldn't be so, so bad to maybe have other people uh, involved not just pro-life, uh, maybe questions of minimum wage, maybe questions of affirmative action, all the cl classic things, that would be okay. Uh, you know, as opposed to just having diversity of color, which is something, but you know, isn't it more important to have diversity of thought? And what happened to this guy? Did they say, no, we don't really want that, but thanks for mentioning it? Oh, no, they fired him, right? <laughs> I mean, talk about the suppression. Like, when you say... How about some diversity of thought? And then they squash that. Isn't that the ultimate in Orwellian approach to, to do this? And I, I find it, I guess, not so shocking on the one hand and shocking on the other hand. The brazenness of this is what um, makes me wonder so much about this. Look, George Orwell in 1984 talked about exactly this kind of stuff. But not from the standpoint of the private enterprise themselves. The government would be doing this sort of crap. Big Brother came from the government. Doublespeak and Newspeak came from the government, right? Uh, the twisting of history came from the government, right? You know, I, we, we were at war with Oceana. No, we've never been at war with Oceana, right? 
um, and, and all the crazy things that do, everything came from the government. And George Orwell was right to be concerned in that, in that context because he was looking at fascism and communism of the day and, and rightfully being very concerned. But it turns out that in our country, the government can only do so much, thank God, right? We do have a limited government enterprise, but that won't stop the, the true believers out there from taking on the mantle for the government itself. In other words, uh, the private enter enterprise is doing it, it to themselves. They're, they're basically making you worry about what you say in your, in your business to your boss, to your fellow employees or otherwise. Now you're, you're going to be worried and paranoid about what might happen if, uh, if you say, if you express an interest in, in Trump, or for that matter, you know, you disagree with Trump, generally speaking, but you know what, I, I think he's, he, that, that Neil Gorsuch uh, appointment was pretty good. You know, I think that's good. Or whatever that, that you might like. You can't even say that now because, you know, you might be fired. So this is a signal that they're sending to everyone out there. Be very careful what you say. Careful how you say it as well. And uh, you better get in line. That's the bottom line. Now, what's, what's also interesting is how much the liberal media has picked up on this. You would think that CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, and so forth would run away from this story, that they would not showcase how this guy has been fired. I think, I mean, to you and me, that's an embarrassment, right? I and mean, this is pure censorship. Yes, it's true. They can, they can do whatever they want, but because it, it's not a government thing, it's not a First Amendment issue. But we don't like the idea of suppressing people's voices, and we think it looks bad on Google, right? I mean, obviously. But the government uh, would be doing one thing. That would be bad enough there. But the other media outlets, instead of kind of pushing this to page 36 of their respective newspapers, what, what do they do? They make it front page headlines. This is a huge issue, and the, the question is why? why? Why would they do this? I have my theory. Um, I, I think it's a theory that I heard also from Hugh Hewitt. I agree with him on this particular issue. What do you think? Why do you think that they're doing this? Me? Yeah, why, why do you think I think it's because they like it and agree with it. Yeah, bingo. bingo. Duh. Yeah, well, but there's one, one step more. I think that they want... To, to send a signal yeah, to everyone else. It's a warning. It's a warning. Don't, don't, don't you even think about, hey, guys, you could be fired just like Google's firing. Right. So watch out ahead of time. And you mentioned the war with Oceano. We've never been at war with Oceano. Oh, we're war with Oceano again. The brilliant of that analogy with this goes completely to this situation. The reason all of this stuff exists in a, the corporate world goes back to 1991, the Clarence Thomas hearings, uh, all that sexual harassment stuff. It was based on a lie. Clarence Thomas never did anything to Anita Hill, for all you remember. Look it up. Look, at the, look up the Thomas Sowell article on it that proves that nothing ever happened to uh, Anita Hill at the hands of Clarence Thomas. Yet America completely changed, and all of these sexual harassment and uh, friendly workplace laws and regulations came into play. Yeah. Here's where it becomes exactly like you said in 1984. The 
the rules National are, Union Party. The rules, the the rules in the workplace for a. Uh, I'm trying to remember these words because they are Orwellian doublespeak. For a uh, was it non-threatening uh, workplace? What, you're a lawyer. What, what do they call that on the hostile workplace? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, all yeah. the rules and laws and regulations that prevent someone from being harassed in a hostile workplace are designed to prevent an employee from being treated the very way conservative employees are being treated at Google. Whistleblowers are coming forward now, and Breitbart and Gateway Pundit and other sites are writing up these articles about uh, anonymous interviews with Google engineers and employees. And they talk about the level of fear they have about verbal harassment, physical intimidation, and actual physical assaults that are taking place within Google with the imprimatur of the HR department and upper management. Meanwhile, Conservative thought is punished with firing and blacklisting at other places in the industry. Right. So, again, it's a completely backwards world. People are getting away with acting in ways that make it a hostile work environment against a certain group of people who, by the way, as we've discussed on your show since we've been doing it, the conservatives are probably the most um, non-hostile actors in any workplace or anywhere else in society. Meanwhile, violent Antifa types, you know, as you find on the Berkeley College campus, are running roughshod throughout Google, spending their working hours, instead of doing work, compiling blacklisting spreadsheets of conservative employees within Google and harassing them. Exactly right. It's it's so funny. It's... um it's this know your place attitude. You want to have conservative thoughts and conservative opinions, that's fine. We're totally okay with that. Just hide it, okay? That's like when the liberals say, um, when we say as conservatives, listen, you know, you want to be gay, uh, we don't care. Whatever you do behind closed doors, that's fine by me, okay? But please have the decency not to kiss and have open PDAs, public displays of affection. In or front walk of, around in lingerie in front of my kids. Right, in front of my kids. Yeah. Please, you know, please have some re- respect for that. We also say, look, you know, whatever you want to do, but at the same time, we weren't so thrilled about the same-sex marriage business <clears throat> because it does diminish the notion of what marriage is and, and, and legal arguments could be made such that are um, um, inconsistent with, uh, with what they actually want. All right, so... It's this know-your-place attitude. Also, by the way, in the old days of Jim Crow, uh, blacks were really suffered quite a bit. And this notion was, hey, listen, yeah, we agree there should not be any slavery, but you know what? Know your place. This is the kind of job you can have, and you can't have any uh, jobs beyond that. And you just kind of keep mum, and that's the way we expect it. All right? That, yeah, that's no, the way it was. No dating white women. Use that fountain. Use that bathroom, and you will all get along here. That's right. If you don't, you'll get a break through your window. We'll burrow down your house, and you might get lynched. That's right. We, your existence is fine. You're allowed to breathe air. You're even allowed to breathe in this, uh, live in this country. But you live over there, and you send your kids to that school, and we'll send our kids to that school, and so forth, right? Know your place was the tone that they had. And that's exactly what's happening at Google and other places. They, they define you, and they decide that you will speak and think this way. And if you can't uh, speak uh, consistent with their global warming mantra and all the other liberal policies, well, then, by golly, uh, just shut the hell up. All right? That's, that's what you're supposed to do. 
And that's offensive to everything we believe in as Americans, right? At the end of the day. And, and they're so funny. When, for example, the uh, Augusta Golf Club, remember this thing? Okay, let me, I'll, I'll bring this close and see how quickly this comes to you. Um, the notion was that they didn't want any women in their members, uh, in their membership it's roles. It's a men's right? club. It's That's a men's right. club, and they wanted to hang out with each other. But it was considered such an important club for business dealing and such that it effectively had a, a, a public domain to it, right? That's and right. therefore, they should be forced to have women in, in the uh, uh, in the picture. Yeah, and, and, l- most, l- and l- most specifically, this is an important point. Yeah. Traditionally with that club over the past X number of years, the CEO of IBM always got a membership as part of being CEO of IBM. Mm-hmm. And a, a couple other corporations like this, Exxon, IBM, a few others, always got memberships. And lo and behold, as time passed, uh, a woman became CEO of IBM. Right. And this became a issue. Right. Rightly, Actually, rightly so. Right. And it, it, I mean, here's another example of what we're talking about. Do you remember the um, uh, the dating website? What is it called? Uh, eHarmony. Yes, and it was such a success. And they had a specific uh, mantra where, listen, we're trying to find mostly Christian heterosexual couples, right, male and female. They didn't have a provision where a man could look for a man and a woman could look for a, a woman. Uh, on other dating sites, I believe that you could probably have that. Okay, so uh, you filter it. I'm a man looking for a man, and so on. Um, Match.com, all the other main websites. But not eHarmony. No, no, no. And eHarmony was very successful because of its particular approach to dating. <clears throat> you had to actually input a lot of information before you actually could sign up and be matched. It was matched. for relationships, not dating and hookups. Right, exactly That's right. Why. So it... But because of it, it was so successful, and also because the, the the left wants to destroy anything good, anything that differentiates, the the gay community went right after it, and they sued them, and they said, "You are effectively a public domain, and you cannot have this freedom of association as you like to think. You must have us in, in it." And, and they brought a major lawsuit. Now, it, it never came to fruition, but eHarmony had to spend so much money on it. Eventually, they relented, and they said, okay, fine. And they had some sort of settlement whereby they allowed for the, these gay uh, matches if they so sought, but they don't have to advertise for it, okay? And so they had, but they did have to change their language to say, if you want somebody special in your life, then come to eHarmony, that sort of thing. So, but the, again, the theory was... That eHarmony was such a public domain at this point that it therefore it had to do this. Okay, why can't we make the same argument with Google? Google is a private enterprise. Google is, I mean, it's far more powerful and far more public, and I put that in air quotes, than eHarmony ever has been or ever will be. Right? Google is Google. Well, you, you don't search for things. Right. You Google for things, mm-hmm. and and <laughs> this is an enterprise. It, it's. I mean, using their own argument, they are quasi-governmental. Well, quasi-public, even public, if yeah, you, yeah and and not only are they quasi-public, they're entirely public. Can I buy shares of your Lurie and Seltzer law firm no. on a side? That's because it's a private company. Can you buy shares of my Victory New Media Solutions? I cannot. No, private company. Can we both buy shares of Google? Yeah, and there's all sorts of laws that regulate 
publicly traded companies right. like Google. Right. They have to act differently. Yeah. And that's part of the exchange of making yourself <clears throat> a public company. That's so true. And, well, and, it, it, I mean, it, it, but at the same time, what they'll say is, and, and frankly, they're right, it's to say, listen, I mean, what we would say in response is companies are companies. They are not government agents. Okay. So don't act like a government agent. That should be the rule. If you're going to act like a government agent, then, then you have to also be fair on the other side. Okay? That, I think that's a fair thing. You can't, for example, I mean, the classic example is when a policeman, they're not allowed to go into your home and, uh, without a warrant and search and seize you or what otherwise. So certainly can't plant evidence and such. But they can't go into your home without a warrant, right? That only applies to the government, i.e. the police. So what's to stop a policeman for saying, listen, I can't go in, but I'm going to go, I'm going to protect this apartment outside, from the outside. I'm not going in whatsoever, but here's 50 bucks, Johnny. Go in and search. The door's wide open. All right? Now, obviously, you can't do that. You're using a private citizen to advance a government policy that would otherwise be unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment. Correct? Correct. So the same thing is happening here. They, these guys, Google, are, are trying to enforce uh, government policies um, that, that are, are totally inconsistent with our federal laws and our state laws, for that matter, and uh, try to suppress people's free speech. And yet, at the same time, hold themselves out to be uh, public, right? I mean, that they're so on the highway of, of life that, anyway, that's, I, I'm simply saying, we can use their own argument against them. Well, the I was the actually going to bring up one other argument as well, which is look how the government stepped in and regulated sweet cakes by Melissa, levying massive <clears throat> fines they couldn't uh, uh, afford. This, this is the gay marriage the, thing? This is the, the cake shop in Oregon. That was attacked. That you know, refused was, to, the, to, you know, the, to supply cake for a gay wedding. Okay, that's what I'm asking. Okay. Right. So that is not a publicly traded company, yet the authorities were more than willing to rush in and enforce all sorts of things on the owners. Here's Google <laughs> oppressing 50% of their employees. Employees are going to work every day in a state of fear. Right. And where's the government rating them? Where's the government hitting them with fair practices and trade trade violations? Well, I agree with you 100%. Look, uh, I have a business here where I have some employees, and I like to think we have a very good, pleasant environment. Uh, you know, but if a woman, generally speaking, if a woman, if she feel felt that uh, you know her boss or a fellow colleague were harassing her by words or even uh, putting up a you know, a scantily clad calendar with, you know, pretty women for January and February and so forth, she could very well say, listen, this is, this is oppressive to me. It creates a workplace, uh, a hostile workplace for me, and uh, I've been damaged, and I'm afraid to go to the office every day, and I shouldn't have to live under this rubric. Um, and for that matter, you know, I, I even, as you know, I don't even allow swearing in my office, not because I'm afraid of, of uh, Johnny Law coming down on me, but because I personally don't like the, the notion of people swearing in an office, I think it, it sends a, a very bad signal to everyone else. It's an ugly feeling, right? And women especially don't like, don't like it. It's, it's, men don't even realize how oppressive it is to women. But that's, that's something I do on my own. But the workplace uh, hostile environment, I mean, it shouldn't just be sexual, right? 
It shouldn't, and we we both agree. If uh, let's say there's a black employee and there's a bunch of white uh, employees nearby, and they kind of uh, undermine him a little bit and they they make uh, reference racist references to him, just to taunt him, uh, saying nasty things about whatever lynching and uh, other things that you know are, are offensive, um, and that's a hostile work environment. And anyone would take them to court and say, you know, this this employer needs to to pay, right? But why is it any different with what Google is doing? Google is doing exactly the same thing. They are making it a, an environment of total fear. And it's not, and, and this is something that's legal to do. To express your opinion is a legal thing in America, right? To, to, to engage in a hate crime is not legal, right? To, to inappropriately touch or harass a woman or to falsely imprison her one way or the other, to make her feel she can't escape, that's illegal in and of itself. <laughs> but expressing your political opinion, expressing your religious beliefs, that's totally protected by, uh, by, by not only the First Amendment, but our sense of, uh, of what it is to be an American in the first place. And so what I'm saying is Google's doing it even worse, even worse, because that's the right that you have and that you can't even walk and talk or chew gum, you know, to, to be to be afraid of the place because of what you, you may be targeted as somebody who who's a, a pro-Trump guy. Maybe a fellow employee doesn't like you, right? And, he's, and he wants to do a Facebook review of you. And he sees, oh, you know what? This Brock Lurie, he posted something that was favorable to Trump. I might just bring that to uh, management, right? That's Orwellian, my friends. Simply for having a thought that is uh, against the wishes, against the policy of Google, that's now something that you can be fired for. That, my friends, is Orwellian. Well, wait, there's more. Do you employ people to come into your law firm and be paid either hourly or salary to just sit around and not violate hostile workplace laws of course or not. regulations? No. No, no, when they come in, they're expected to t carry out the duties that are entailed within their job description, for better or worse. And if they do more than that, that's called going above and beyond. If they do less than that, then it's uh, hopefully they're doing the adequate job. But, but y y people come to an organization, a as they say, a going concern right. to accomplish, right? That's right. So not only did the Google engineer who wrote the memo not violate any hostile workplace anything by writing this memo, he was actually engaging in the obligations he had to the organization to bring to light uh, analysis of what was going on. Right. And the That's big right. money shot within his analysis was that it's not our gender uh, discrimination policies that are increasing or decreasing the balance between male and female employees in the engineering sector of Google, it's that there are scientifically corroborated biological factors that lead smaller amounts of women in general, we're speaking in generalities here, not right. specifics, because there are great female engineers out there, there are, to not be as interested in this area of industry as men are. 
right. which explains why we have a disparity in the workforce numbers between male and female. And perhaps the way to correct it is not the sexual uh, gender policies, but actual areas somewhere else in the, in the solution process. Yeah. That's what he wrote, which he's being attacked as a misogynist for. I know. That, and yeah, this yeah. is important. Doing this kind of analysis within a company like that is within the job description and the interests of the company so it can make better decisions on how to hire and promote yes. people to accomplish the goals of the company. And the reason Google exists, like your law firm exists, is to stay in business and flourish, not to employ a certain number of people to sit around and not harass each other. Yeah. So he's... He's having his his freedom to think and speak curtailed on the one hand, and Google is acting in a way that's self-destructive on the other, which I think is the real terrible tragedy about this. Well, look, I, I have always said that people worry too too much about antitrust uh, laws and such like that. It, it, at the end of the day, these monopolies always trip upon themselves. They, they get too big and unwieldy. They do stupid things. They lose focus of the real mission. That's right. Which is what this is. Right. It happened to Microsoft. It happened to IBM. It happened to Hewlett Packard. It happened to, even to Apple at one point. <clears throat> and then um, and it happened to AOL, right? I mean, I can give many different examples. Yeah, the and, best is Sears. Huge uh, company. Yeah. Now basically gone. And look, it, it, they always eventually topple upon themselves. And Google... You know, is a giant. There's no getting around that. It's a huge, huge organization that does, uh, you know, uh, it, it's entrenched in so many different industries at this point. And I see the rise of Amazon, of which is going to be interesting as well. But Google is going to start suffering when it has these kind of, it, it, it's lost sight of who it is and what its main mission is, which is, it's supposed to be business. It's supposed to be separate and apart from all this political claptrap and all this religious claptrap for that matter. And then if it gets, if, once you forget your main mission, you fall apart. Look, at the end of the day, you know, we conservatives, <clears throat> we have an we have a interesting battle all the time. We are a party of live and let live, right? You do your thing, I do mine. Uh, we believe in states' rights. In fact, the more localized the government is, the more limited <clears throat> the extent of regulations and laws are, the better off we are as a people. Let people govern themselves. That's, that's our approach, right? And so we have this interesting dichotomy where we look at a, at a business and we wouldn't even think to tell them how they should run their business. You run your business because you want, we, presumably you want to make money. And by, you make money by not alienating people for one thing, right? And, and you make money by not uh, overimposing regulations or receiving regulations from the government or otherwise. And presumably you, you, don't, you, you don't make a mess of your own employees, Right? But again, it's this, this disparity. On the one hand, we don't want to interfere. On the other hand, we don't want to be uh, suppressed, uh, all of our freedoms su suppressed. And, and then they point to us when we point out this, this stuff, and then they say, I thought you said live and let live and, and let us be. No, we, we do believe in laws, my friends. We, we believe in not suppressing our rights. And this is exactly what you are doing, Google. We're going to hold you to account. We're going to watch this with considerable interest. And we may very well use the tools that you use against you, something that we all call irony. I'm Brock Lurie. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you next week.